Section 3 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Constitutional History of the Lancastrian Dynasty. Edward III died in the year 1377. His eldest son, Edward of Windsor, whom later ages have called the Black Prince, was already dead. So the old king was succeeded by his grandson, Richard, only son of the Black Prince. Richard's reign was a stormy one. He was a young man of great ideas and high ambitions, but his uncles would not let him rule freely. Already the results of the family settlement of Edward III were beginning to show themselves. The chief danger came from the youngest uncle, Thomas of Woodstock, the fifth son of Edward III. Thomas was the Duke of Gloucester, a man of strong will and great wealth and influence. It was he who, at the head of some of the greatest barons under the name of Lord's Appellant, curbed the powers of the young Richard and kept him in a strict tutelage from 1387 to 1389. But in the last year, Richard shook off the Lord's Appellant and for eight years ruled well by himself. But in 1397, he began to act in an arbitrary fashion. A series of unconstitutional acts lost him the confidence of many people, and in 1399 his cousin, Henry of Lancaster, was able to carry out the revolution in which Richard was deposed and Henry elevated to the throne. Henry was another member of the royal family who had great possessions. His father, John of Gaunt, had many estates, a Lancastrian belt, which stretched across England from the Duchy of Lancaster to Essex. John had remained faithful to his nephew Richard, but his son Henry had been one of the Lord's Appellant, who for a time controlled the king. Richard, by stretching his prerogative, had made Henry an exile in 1398. Next year, Henry landed at the mouth of the Humber to enter into possession of the estates of his father, who had just died. Within three months, on September 30th, Henry had been recognized as king in Parliament. Richard was a prisoner and died in February 1400 in Pontefract Castle. Thus began the rule of the Lancastrian branch of the ancient Plantagenet family. Henry IV was able to come to the throne, not merely because he was a prince of the royal blood, but because he was a man of great possessions, being through his father heir to all the Lancastrian inheritance, and through his wife, Mary de Bouin, heir to a great part of the Bouin inheritance in Hereford, Essex, Northampton. Thus the family settlement of Edward III was already working out its effect. Already the legitimate king, had been dispossessed by a prince who had the wealth and the influence and the ambition of a great territorial magnate combined with the claims that attached to royal birth. Sixty years later, the family settlement was to achieve another revolution when another prince, who was also one of the greatest territorial magnates, was to dispossess a king whose wealth and influence were not so great as his. Henry IV claimed the crown on two grounds firstly as being descended from King Henry III, secondly as being acknowledged by Parliament to save the realm from default of governance and undoing of the laws. The first part of his claim can scarcely have been meant as giving him a prior right to everyone else. 
There were other princes who were descended from Henry III. But Henry IV claimed his descent not so much through his father, John of Gaunt, as through his mother, Blanche of Lancaster, who was descended from Edmund Crouchback, second son of Henry III. The young Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, grandson of Philippa of Clarence, was descended from Edward I, the elder son of Henry III. To do away with this difficulty, it was pretended by the Lancastrians that Edmund Crouchback, not Edward I, was really the elder son of Henry III, but was passed over because of his supposed deformity. Few people, however, believed this story. So the real title of Henry IV to the throne was a parliamentary one. He did think of claiming the throne by right of conquest, but his wise adviser, Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury, dissuaded him from taking this course, for to hold the crown by conquest would be to nullify all previously existing law of the land and to start an entirely new state of things. Such a course would have been fatal to the new dynasty, as a revolution is only acquiesced in by people who have anything to lose if titles and property are guaranteed and the law of the land is maintained. The Lancastrian title, therefore, depended on the recognition of Parliament given in September and October 1399. The fact that there was an elder branch of the Plantagenet family in existence did not in any way invalidate the parliamentary title of the king, which was a good one in law, and according to the ancient customs of the realm, just as the title of the House of Brunswick, established by the Act of Settlement in the year 1701, was not invalid because there was a family of prior descent in existence, namely the Stuarts. The governing classes of the country accepted Henry IV as king because they were afraid for their property and for their religion. Richard II, at the end of his reign, had made himself an absolute monarch, and the propertied classes could not feel themselves safe from his power. Through his first wife, Anne of Bohemia, who had been brought under the influence of John Hus, he had been attracted by the new religious thought known in England as Lollardy. The Lollards attacked the doctrine and the property of the church. Their views on property seem to have extended sometimes from disendowment of the church to disendowment of all the propertied classes. Thus people who had anything to lose, and people who were attached to the medieval church, welcomed the Lancastrian dynasty as being an orthodox family that would preserve both church and state. It may almost be said that Henry IV and his successors were kings by a sort of contract. They owed their title to Parliament, and the conditions of their ruling were that they should give good government, that they should be constitutional in their methods, taking always the advice of their councillors and Parliament, and that they should be orthodox and good churchmen. To the best of their ability, the Lancastrians strove all through to carry out their understanding. They were loyal to the church, they persecuted the heretics, they preserved the property of the religious corporations, and they established and endowed new pious communities. So the churchmen as a whole stood by them, and all the chroniclers who were ecclesiastics speak well of them. But though they satisfied the churchmen, they could not satisfy the laymen. The nobles and the middle classes found that good government did not always exist that law and order did not invariably prevail. 
except during the short reign of Henry V, the country was never quite free from disorder. The Wars of the Roses, when they came, were just a supreme and crucial instance of the breakdown of government with which, in a minor degree, the country had long been familiar. The failure of government was not entirely the fault of the Lancastrians. It was due partly to the policy of Edward III setting up appanaged houses within the royal family, and partly to the state of the nobles, who were reduced to too few numbers and who had accumulated too much land and influence. The Lancastrian kings did their best, and doubtless would have done better had they not been too poor. Henry IV, throughout his reign, was a hard-working, active king, and scrupulous to abide by the understanding according to which he had come to the throne. In all important matters he carefully took the advice of the Privy Council, his ministers were appointed with the approval of Parliament, and any legislation that the Commons as a whole desired was freely accepted by the King. The records of the Privy Council show the scope and variety of the business submitted to it. War, peace, finance, justice, nothing was kept from it. The King sat regularly at the Council Board and worked hard at the business of the realm. The privileges of Parliament were scrupulously maintained by Henry IV and Henry V, and measures were taken to ensure that the commons were freely elected. In 1406, the famous Indenture Act was passed, ordering that the name of the person elected in any constituency should be confirmed under the seals of the electors, and that this proof should be sent up to Westminster by the sheriff along with the writ. Thus the sheriff could not substitute the name of another candidate between the time of the election and the return of the writ. Yet although Henry IV meant well and worked hard, his reign was troubled. The nobles who had helped him to the throne had grown too powerful and proud in the process. The great northern family of Percy was especially troublesome and several times renewed the game of king-making before they were finally quelled on Branham Moor in 1408. The Scots made many raids over the border into England, though these raids were fewer when their king was captive in London after 1406. In Wales, the great rebel Owen Glendower remained unconquered, though often defeated, for the space of twelve years. Worst of all, the narrow seas of which the English kings had long claimed the dominion were no longer guarded. French pirates swarmed in the Channel, and scarcely a year passed without some maritime raid on an English coast town. Henry IV was a man of weak health, but of valiant spirit. He shrank from no task that faced him, and it was only due to the meagerness of the resources of the crown that his government was not efficient or unquestioned. For although Henry IV had been a wealthy duke, he was by no means a wealthy king. After his elevation to the throne, his followers had to be rewarded, and some of the crown revenues and land were alienated to them. The remaining portions of the royal income were absorbed partly by the great household expenses which the king had to maintain, partly by the public services of the crown. For in those days there was no distinction between the private and public expenditure of the king. The royal income had to provide for both. It has been estimated that the total revenue of the crown, including the income from the duchies of Lancaster and Cornwall, the earldom of Chester, and from customs, subsidies, and other dues, 
was an average of little over £100,000 per annum. Out of this sum, all the services of the crown had to be maintained, all the king's palaces, castles, and manors, the expenses of administration at home, the defence of the narrow seas, and the upkeep of the fortresses of Berwick and Calais. The maintenance of these two places alone cost upwards of £30,000 per annum. It is small wonder, then, that the administration was not completely effective throughout this reign. It is all to the king's credit that he maintained his throne and his government and met his difficulties so manfully and died leaving the kingdom in peace. His son, the attractive and brilliant Henry V, did much at the time to confirm his dynasty on the throne. He showed that he was superior to troubles at home by leading the forces of the nation abroad and by gaining the succession to the crown of France. He had the great advantage of not being a parvenu king, for his father had reigned before him. Whatever the circumstances of the accession, Henry IV had undoubtedly been king, and so young Henry held the throne by hereditary right. Everything seemed to combine to establish his dynasty forever. When he succeeded his father on the throne, he had been a popular and long-accepted heir apparent. He was a brilliant and successful soldier. Nothing so much stimulates the loyalty of a people as great foreign conquests. He was the unquestioned ruler of England, the friend and supporter of the Catholic Church, the ally and confidant of the Holy Roman Emperor, the most legitimate sovereign in Europe. To all this he added the succession to the crown of France, and so succeeded to a long line of Capet and to the throne of Clovis and Charlemagne. The Treaty of Troyes in 1420 marks the highest point to which his power extended. His realms now extended from the Tweed to the Atlantic and to the Pyrenees. When he died, he left a son to carry on his work, with the noble, valiant, and loyal John, Duke of Bedford, to guard the kingdoms during the king's tender years. No one now questioned the right of the House of Lancaster, which, strictly respecting the constitution of the country, had raised England to the highest point ever reached in the Middle Ages. For the glory of Henry V far surpassed that of the famous Angevin Empire of Henry II. Henry II was sovereign in England, but as Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, Duke of Aquitaine, he was the man and inferior of the French king. But Henry V had no one over him except God. He owed no fealty whether as king or duke, he was free of all feudal ties. His brothers, John, Duke of Bedford, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and Thomas, Duke of Clarence, were able, vigorous, and loyal. Clarence died on the field of Beauget in 1421. In the next reign, the ambition of Humphrey of Gloucester caused difficulties. But at the death of Henry V, everything seemed prospering for the House of Lancaster. The family known later as Yorkist showed no dangerous ambitions. The reigning family was well supported by the Beauforts. This last family was descended from the union of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. It was thus closely related to the reigning house. But though legitimated by act of Parliament, they were legally incapable of inheriting the crown. Their wealth and influence made them powerful supporters of the reigning line, to which they were attracted by every tie of kinship, gratitude, and interest. 
their fortune depended upon those of the lancastrian dynasty with this they must rise or fall meanwhile the two remaining branches of edward's family had amalgamated edmund mortimer who was the great-grandson of lionel of clarence and who was the adopted heir of richard the second died in fourteen twenty four without issue the family of his sister anne mortimer therefore represented the line of lionel of clarence who it must be remembered was elder brother of the progenitor of the lancastrian line john of gaunt anne mortimer in fourteen ten had married richard known later as earl of cambridge the son of edmund of langley the fourth son of edward the third richard at the end of a career of loyalty to the lancastrian line became involved in a conspiracy against henry v in 1415 for this he was tried found guilty and executed at southampton but the family was not attainted he left a son richard four years old who was kindly treated by henry v and who on the death of his father's brother at the battle of agincourt became duke of york End of section 3